Prologue to the Moon Maid. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas Copeland. The Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Prologue. I met him in the blue room of the transoceanic liner Harding, the night of Mars Day. June 10th, 1967. I had been wandering about the city for several hours prior to the sailing of the flyer, watching the celebration, dropping in at various places that I might see as much as possible of scenes that doubtless will never again be paralleled, a world gone mad with joy. There was only one vacant chair in the blue room, and that at a small table at which he was already seated alone. I asked his permission and he graciously invited me to join him, rising as he did so, his face lighting with a smile that compelled my liking from the first. I had thought that Victory Day, which we had celebrated two months before, could never be eclipsed in point of mad national enthusiasm, but the announcement that had been made this day appeared to have had even a greater effect upon the minds and imaginations of the people. The more than half-century of war that had continued almost uninterruptedly since 1914 had at last terminated in the absolute domination of the Anglo-Saxon race over all the other races of the world, and practically for the first time since the activities of the human race were preserved for posterity in any enduring form, no civilized or even semi-civilized nation maintained a battle line upon any portion of the globe. War was at an end, definitely and forever. Arms and ammunition were being dumped into the five oceans. The vast armadas of the air were being scrapped or converted into carriers for purposes of peace and commerce. The peoples of all nations had celebrated, victors and vanquished alike, for they were tired of war. At least they thought that they were tired of war, but were they? What else did they know? Only the oldest of men could recall even a semblance of world peace. The others knew nothing but war. Men had been born and lived their lives and died with their grandchildren clustered about them, all with the alarms of war ringing constantly in their ears. Perchance the little area of their activities was never actually encroached upon by the iron-shod hoof of battle. But always somewhere war endured, now receding like the salt tide, only to return again, until there arose that great tidal wave of human emotion in 1959 that swept the entire world for eight bloody years, and receding left peace upon a spent and devastated world. Two months had passed, two months during which the world appeared to stand still, to mark time to hold its breath, what now? We have peace. But what shall we do with it? The leaders of thought and of action are trained for but one condition. War. The reaction brought despondency. Our nerves, accustomed to the constant stimulus of excitement, cried out against the monotony of peace. And yet no one wanted war again. We did not know what we wanted. And then came the announcement that I think saved a world from madness. 
for it directed our minds along a new line to the contemplation of a fact far more engrossing than prosaic wars and equally as stimulating to the imagination and the nerves intelligible communication had at last been established with mars generations of wars had done their part to stimulate scientific research to the end that we might kill one another more expeditiously that we might transport our youth more quickly to their shallow graves in alien soil that we might transmit more secretly and with greater celerity our orders to slay our fellow men and always generation after generation there had been those few who could detach their minds from the contemplation of massacre and looking forward to a happier era concentrate their talents and their energies upon the utilization of scientific achievement for the betterment of mankind and the rebuilding of civilization among these was that much ridiculed but devoted coterie who had clung tenaciously to the idea that communication could be established with mars the hope that had been growing for a hundred years had never been permitted to die but had been transmitted from teacher to pupil with ever-growing enthusiasm while the people scoffed as a hundred years before we are told they scoffed at the experiments with flying machines as they chose to call them about nineteen forty had come the first reward of long years of toil and hope following the perfection of an instrument which accurately indicated the direction and distance of the focus of any radioactivity with which it might be attuned for several years prior to this all the more highly sensitive receiving instruments had recorded a series of three dots and three dashes which began at precise intervals of twenty-four hours and thirty-seven minutes and continued for approximately fifteen minutes the new instrument indicated conclusively that these signals if they were signals originated always at the same distance from the earth and in the same direction as the point in the universe occupied by the planet mars it was five years later before a sending apparatus was evolved that bade fair to transmit its waves from earth to mars at first their own message was repeated three dots and three dashes although the usual interval of time had not elapsed since we had received their daily signal ours was immediately answered then we sent a message consisting of five dots and two dashes alternating immediately they replied with five dots and two dashes and we knew beyond peradventure of a doubt that we were in communication with the red planet but it required twenty-two years of unremitting effort the most brilliant intellects of two worlds concentrated upon it to evolve and perfect an intelligent system of intercommunication between the two planets today this 10th of june 1967 there was published broadcast to the world the first message from mars it was dated helium barsoom and merely extended greetings to a sister world and wished us well but it was the beginning the blue room of the harding was i presume but typical of every other gathering place in the civilized world men and women were eating drinking laughing singing and talking 
the flyer was racing through the air at an altitude of a little over a thousand feet its engines motivated wirelessly from power plants thousands of miles distant drove it noiselessly and swiftly along its overnight pathway between chicago and paris i had of course crossed many times but this instance was unique because of the epoch-making occasion which the passengers were celebrating, and so I sat at the table longer than usual, watching my fellow diners with, I imagine, a slightly indulgent smile on my lips, since I mentioned it in no spirit of egotism. It had been my high privilege to assist in the consummation of a hundred years of effort that had borne fruit that day. I looked around at my fellow diners, and then back to my table companion. He was a fine-looking chap, lean and bronze. One need not have noted the Air Corps overseas uniform, the Admiral's stars and anchors, or the wound stripes to have guessed that he was a fighting man. He looked at every inch of him, and there were a full seventy-two inches. We talked a little about the great victory and the message from Mars, of course, and, though he often smiled, I noticed an occasional shadow of sadness in his eyes, and once, after a particularly mad outburst of pandemonium on the part of the celebrators, he shook his head, remarking, Poor devils! And then, It is just as well. Let them enjoy life while they may. I envy them their ignorance. What do you mean? I asked. He flushed a little and then smiled. Was I speaking aloud? he asked. I repeated what he had said, and he looked steadily at me for a long minute before he spoke again. Oh, what's the use? he exclaimed almost petulantly. You wouldn't understand, and of course you wouldn't believe. I do not understand it myself. But I have to believe, because I know, I know from personal observation, God, if you could have seen what I have seen. Tell me, I begged, but he shook his head dubiously. Do you realize that there is no such thing as time? He asked suddenly. That man has invented time to suit the limitations of his finite mind, just as he has named another thing that he can neither explain nor understand, space? I have heard of such a theory, I replied but I neither believe nor disbelieve. I simply do not know. I thought I had him started, and so I waited, as I have read in fiction stories is the proper way to entice a strange narrative from its possessor. He was looking beyond me, and I imagined that the expression of his eyes denoted that he was witnessing again the thrilling scenes of the past. I must have been wrong, though. In fact, I was quite sure of it when he next spoke. If that girl isn't careful, he said, the thing will upset and give her a nasty fall. She is much too near the edge. I turned to see a richly dressed and much disheveled young lady busily dancing on a tabletop, while her friends and the surrounding diners cheered her lustily. My companion rose. I have enjoyed your company immensely, he said, and I hope to meet you again. I am going to look for a place to sleep now. They could not give me a stateroom. I don't seem to be able to get enough sleep since they sent me back. You smiled. Miss the gas shells and radio bombs, I suppose, I remarked. Yes, he replied, just as a convalescent misses smallpox. 
I have a room with two beds, I said. At the last minute, my secretary was taken ill. I'll be glad to have you share the room with me. He thanked me and accepted my hospitality for the night. The following morning, we would be in Paris. As we wound our way among the tables filled with laughing, joyous diners, my companion paused beside that at which sat the young woman who had previously attracted his attention. Their eyes met, and into hers came a look of puzzlement and half-recognition. He smiled frankly in her face, nodded, and passed on. "'You know her, then?' I asked. "'I shall, in two hundred years,' was his enigmatical reply. We found my room, and there we had a bottle of wine and some little cakes and a quiet smoke, and became much better acquainted. It was he who first reverted to the subject of our conversation in the blue room. "'I am going to tell you,' he said, "'what I have never told another, but on the condition.' that if you retell it, you are not to use my name. I have several years of this life ahead of me, and I do not care to be pointed out as a lunatic. First, let me say that I do not try to explain anything, except that I do not believe prevision to be a proper explanation. I have actually lived the experiences I shall tell you of, and that girl we saw dancing on the table tonight lived them with me but she does not know it. If you care to, you can keep in mind the theory that there is no such thing as time. Just keep it in mind. You cannot understand it, or at least I cannot. Here goes. End of the prologue.